Welcome to the Pre-Hype Podcast. If you're new to the show, let me give you a little introduction. I'm your host, Henrik Gordelin, and I spent my career building new ventures, both as a co-founder, as an investor, and as an advisor. In this podcast, I'm inviting really smart entrepreneurial people out for a walk and talk while we get some coffee and talk about some of the skills and the tools and mindsets they use to solve problems in a scalable way. I hope you enjoy today's show. So there's this place around the corner where they take uh, cereal and then blend it into ice cream. Have you tried one of those? No. That sounds like something I need to try, though. Um, so the reason why I was keen to get you on my podcast yes. is I think you are thinking about not just how to solve a problem in a scalable way, but how do you set up kind of like a system for trying to solve a lot of different problems. Mm, yeah. And while I know that you can't be too specific about what you do, right? Yes. And maybe we could talk in abstract about how you think about these things. But do you mind to tell who you are? So I am Julie Thibault, and I work for a brand that you might have heard of. It's called Chanel. It's a French-based brand. And for the last couple of years, I've been working on trying to figure out new ways to create um, experiences, particularly with our fragrance and beauty products. One of the things that's unique about Chanel is really the quality of its products. And I think the problem that we had to solve was how do you get more people to understand what is special about our products? And you and I have talked about this, that um, experiencing things is really the reason that you have physical environments anymore. Because if it's not a tactile or sensorial experience, there's so much you can do online. And that's where the rest of the world is um, seeing value in, well, actually I should say sensorial and tactile, but also human. Yes. Wanting to talk to a real life human being. How did you get into Chanel? You've been there for a long time? Uh, I've been there 13 years and it's my first job in retail or luxury. Before that I did uh, investment banking and some private equity and consulting. When you think about a luxury brand and you think about retail, I guess those kind of comes more naturally together because you're buying something more than just the utility of the thing, right? Like, you know. Yeah, you um, don't actually need a Chanel lipstick. Well, <laughs> I think my wife would disagree, um, but one of my colleagues, he talked about what he, what he calls the price of irrationality and that how Amazon have kind of like taught everybody that if they're just buying for utility, they'll be able to get like a grid system where they get all the products that's available in the world, what the price is and how other people liked it. Right. And so there's kind of two types of products in my world now. There's products that are just utilities and there you just go for price and convenience. And then there's like all the other stuff. In my world, there's actually three types of products, but you're right. I think there's the functional one where you're looking for the best value, very rational. And that's what's great about beauty is it's actually kind of irrational and irrational, unlike fashion, which unless you're really buying something to keep warm, um, there is a utilitarian function to beauty as well. But I think one of the things I've learned from a lot of the women that do buy Chanel or other luxury brands is that I used to think it was about external status was a primary driver. 
And more and more what we're seeing is a lot of interest in products that, like in Chanel, for example, foundation, which no one besides you would ever really know it was Chanel. Mm -hmm. But this internal feeling of like, this is a good thing for me and I deserve this. Mm -hmm. Especially more and more women work hard and they're achieving more and they like feeling like this is a marker of achievement. And then the third type of, I guess it's not really product, it's brand, but people going gravitating towards brands where they just know that if they buy this product, it's gonna be a good quality product. And in the case that it isn't, because as you know, even the best products, you can always have lemons, that the company will stand by it and give them good customer service. And I actually think Restoration Hardware is one of those brands that does that really well. Not everything they have is super quality, but you know that there's a there's a base level of quality, and if it doesn't work out, they will happily make it right. Why do people value that? You can return something easily on Amazon, but when you actually need customer service or advice, and maybe the first step isn't returning it, you just want to know how better to use it or can you fix it, Amazon lends itself well to a very disposable consumerism, yeah. but I think there is still a place for people to want to go for a brand that says, you know what, we stand by our product, we'll help you figure out how to use it, make it better, and if it really doesn't work out, we'll find you a good substitute. Do you think in, the, in a world where you feel like there's an increased amount of nationalism and romanticizing of kind of like things that are old, do you think that, that because that it is so easy now to get everything quick and cheap that there's a little bit of a drive towards kind of like brands that have like a long history and craftsmanship and... I hope so. So here's how it works. You can choose between the different cereals, Apple Jacks, Captain Crunch, all those different ones, toppings, and then they blend them all. You can either get them in a smoothie, which is like a ceiling calories or you can get them done in like a ice cream an ice cream thing Ooh. what do you uh i don't know like i had one of those um specials the other day um there is what fruit berry bliss banana cream chocolate coconut crunch i don't know I'm kind of feeling the honey bunches of oats. I think I might go for a fruit berry bliss. You want them as a cereal bowl, ice cream swirl, or ice cream milkshake? Ice cream swirl. <laughs> hey, how are you doing? Um, which one are you having? The honey bunches of oats. Uh, in a cup. And I'll have the uh, fruity berry bliss in a cup, please. I just like hearing him say that. What are you having again? <laughs> Am I saying it wrong? The fruity berry bliss. No, but it sounds very cute. Would like any toppings? Actually, he added an E for the fruit. It was fruit berry bliss. Um, toppings? Mm -hmm. These are the toppings? Uh, oh. You know what? I'll have some peanuts. I'm okay, I think. Thank you. So maybe this is actually a good example, right? Like, like it's an ice cream store. Well, you could totally do this at home, but there's something about coming here and seeing all the cereal. Somebody else was saying to me the other day that one of the interesting things with Instagram brands, he named basically like a 
New York agencies that have done a lot of like the, the new kind of like first on Instagram kind of brands. And he says they basically ruined it for everybody because it used to be that if the ads and the product looked amazing, people assumed that a lot of time and energy had gone into making them. But because that it's increasingly easier to render things, then just seeing like a beautiful ad on Instagram and then buying it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody, a founder or a company that really have deep integrity have like spent all the time. And so like that contract that was like, if it looks like real craftsmanship, then it also is, has kind of been broken. That's true. I think consumers are catching up to that. There was an influencer brand recently that, um, I think it, her name was Jacqueline, came out with a lipstick and there were a bunch of particles in it and there was a ton of backlash against it. That's the type of stuff that a big cosmetic brand would quickly pick up in a QA test. And maybe, I think, over time, hopefully, there'll be more demand on understanding the manufacturing. Mm -hmm. But I think to luxury, luxury in the future is you want to buy the belt or the car or the whatever from the person who's the best at making it, if you're spending that much money on something. Yep. So for things that are handmade or, or made with scarce or finite resources, I think there's always going to be maybe less of a heritage story, but more of a craftsmanship story that you can tell. And the heritage story is no different than I think a founder story today. For a brand like Chanel, where there's a really strong story behind the woman who did it, that's the same maybe one day with Amazon and the story behind the man who founded that. I yeah. think it's always going to be a founder story. Yeah. But that's whether the founder is still alive or the founder has been passed away for decades, it's still a founder story. I wonder how much that makes a difference. As you know, I'm writing this book where the core thesis is really about how companies need to grow a little bit more like trees where... Order number 59. Oh, that's us. Yep, 59. What? I'll go ahead. I mean, I feel like I should Instagram this. You should Instagram it. Go for it. This is a work instead of a coffee you go out for. Uh, it is very hot. But I think this might be actually a good example of what we're talking about, right? We could probably go and get ice cream in a lot of different places. But we go here because we want to have an experience around it and there's a little bit of a story and uh, I think... Blessed. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Why did I get to the big one? <laughs> That's good. I'm sure I'm crunching on the microphone. <laughs> That's okay. So when we were thinking about making this new, it's called the Atelier. Mm -hmm. Did it start out by really saying we should figure out like what does a experience look like when we are interfacing with our customers in the, in no, the future? No, it started out by thinking about what is a good experience, right? And for many people, it's a good experience is never shopping. No. A good experience if you don't prompt with shopping is more about, they'll bring up things like restaurants, hotels, uh, in New York City, fitness classes. Um, but they never bring up the sort of quotidian experiences like shopping or doctor's offices or things that you actually have to do a lot. Um, what makes a good experience, I bet you can guess, what's the number one thing that makes something a good experience? Mm, that they had a good 
rapport or relationship with the person that they were dealing with? Exactly, people. So in retail today, I don't know how many pop-ups I've been to, so coolly designed, really catchy, hooky things to do. Technology, touch screens, you name it. But nine times out of 10, they staff it with a bunch of people who are you know, hired out an agency or temporary and it misses the mark. Mm. And I, I think it's always funny where new store concepts are always about technology, the latest technology in the store. But when you actually come to a physical space, you're actually probably not looking to interact with technology. No. You're looking to interact with somebody. I've been thinking a lot about how in all this kind of craze for getting more personalization, people have forgotten about personal. Sometimes you don't want an algorithm to tell you what other people like you told. You want to kind of be charmed by somebody who says, you know, like, hey, for somebody like you, I think you as a unique individual should get this specific thing. Well, and what's, I think you've actually prompted this in a discussion we've had in the past. What makes it even better is if you actually do have data that's personal data about you, and then someone that you perceive as an expert interprets it. That's even better. Because if they understand more about your history, your lifestyle, or depending on whether it's a doctor or a stylist or whatever it is, and then actually meet you in person and put together the qualitative and the quantitative, that would be amazing. I kind of like this area. Like Chinatown, Little Italy, hybrid. Yeah, you gotta put it together. But same like every time you come down to Little Italy, which is why I don't do it anymore, you want someone to tell you what the best Italian restaurant is. Yeah. And actually, you'll probably get a different answer in this neighborhood every single time. And it probably doesn't matter, right? Yeah. So what do you think is some of the things that you thought to be true when you started this process that you no longer think to be true? Um, well, the one I mentioned before was about luxury being about external status. It is a lot more about how, how being a luxury customer makes you feel about yourself. Like someone once said to me, if you had a Jaguar but you could never put the logo on it, would you still buy it? And I think the answer today for a lot of people is yes, if the Jaguar were indeed a superior car. And actually it might make it cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else have I been wrong about? We've been really trying to figure out how to create um, careers for people, and particularly in the retail industry. And I think that I've always looked up to companies like Starbucks that offered benefits and all these other wonderful things. And starting to really feel like the workforce today doesn't, they value flexibility and individuality over things like benefits. Mm. They want to make their own schedules. They want to wear what they want. They want to be able to take paid time off when they want, or unpaid, actually. They don't even care about that time off when they want. Yeah. You think that's specific for retail staff? No, I'm actually starting to see some of it in the corporate world, too. I don't know if you are. I think just this idea that people are coming in and then working somewhere for 20 years and 
that definitely is kind of moving away. Like a lot of time in the entrepreneurial world now, I meet more and more entrepreneurs. It's like, yeah, I know I probably should make my startup in New York or San Francisco, but I want to move to North Carolina because that's where my family is. And so I had the founder of Olo on the podcast. He was talking about, I think, 30, 40 or 50 percent, like a high percent of his staff are now remote. Um, and so he used to, he was talking a lot about like this being a family business, used to be like seeing you're the business, you're calling us a family, but now he's kind of pivoted the word to be more about seeing it as a family business, as we would like to have people in our organization that value the family. So if they need to work home for like three days a week, then that's something that we should cater for. I'm actually definitely seeing that and um, I'm a big fan of hiring parents because they have this ability to work remotely in the professional athlete world, what they call table scrapping. Like you have, let's say you're training for a big road race as a cyclist and you have a really busy day, but you're going to, you have the opportunity to take the stairs and you're going to go up the stairs a few times just to get some workout in. Yeah. I feel like parents do that a lot. They squeeze in, oh, I had some time in between this and this, and I put together this brief, and they send it to you at these really crazy hours, but they're very efficient with that. There you go, creating content right there on the street. Looks like an Instagram friend taking a very Yeah, and one thing here is also uh, Glossia. Look at that. Yeah. The whole line there, it's... It's amazing. It is pretty incredible. They used to have the office here. I think they moved up in Soho now. It's just their flagship now, right? Mm. Who do you see out there that you think are doing a good job in reinventing what we don't want to call retail? They obviously have seemed to attack into something. I think they're doing an amazing job. Um, yeah, I just went to this store that I fell in love with in the Flatiron District called Camp. Yeah. With my uh, daughter and my son. And what was amazing about it is it's, a, it's really an experience. Um, they also have a membership club. And my daughter's probably too old for it. She's How 10. How old is your daughter? 10. But I wanted to go, so I took her with me. She loved it so much, even though it was a bit too young for her. So here's kid word of mouth. She comes home and tells her four-year-old brother, you have to have mommy take you to this store called camp. That's awesome. So, of course, he's, like, been on me. I want to go to camp. I want to go to camp. So we took him. This is the other beauty, I think, of not only was everybody wonderful and friendly, and it was, they knew their audience. The build was simple, but everything was kid-tailored. And actually, the merchandise is not that different from what you would see at a cool bookstore or toy store, but it's just the way they have it displayed and organized and the other experiences they have within it. And the name. Because he comes back and he remembers it, and he still is talking Mm. to his friends about this store called Camp. I took my uh, five and a half year old there, and um, the people haven't been there. It just looks like a normal kid store. And then there was like a staff member that was standing over in the corner by a big kind of shelf area, and uh, called my son over, and like kind of like waved him over, and he looked nervous at me, and I kind of go over there, and I was like, yeah, go over there. So she leaned down, and she got like, what's your favorite word to stop and see? And he looks at me, and looks at her, and she goes, cake? She goes like, that's exactly right. That's the magic word. Oh my and God. then try to push the, uh, the shelf. And so he pushes the shelf, right? And this like big secret space opens. 
and he cannot contain himself. He's so excited that he's kind of like running on the spot and he goes like, gonna go in and so he walks in there and then there's like all these amazing things in there. And it's good in many ways, right? It's good because they, they have like really good stuff, like it's merchandised really well. So there's a lot of fun stuff. I like that there's a lot of like small things he could do when he get tired of looking. So there's yeah. a little trampoline, there's a little slide. Fire engine, yeah. Uh, and then obviously like the whole setup of it being something yeah. is like, amazing, right? It was very well done. to go over in the shade. Yeah. I'm trying to think who else does it well. I mentioned restoration hardware. Yeah. So this is funny. For those of you who haven't been in New York, they open this giant space that has a restaurant in it in the meatpacking district. I think it was where the old pasties used to be. Yeah. And I was there with my husband one night on like a Tuesday looking at a couch. And, and um, we were like, oh, we're hungry. Let's just go to the restaurant, try it out. They were like, yeah, sorry, we can't take you until like three weeks from now. Meanwhile, we go to a really cool Italian place in the meatpacking district. No wait, the food was amazing. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is what marketing does, right? Like a good experience they just have. And New York City, which has a pretty high cool meter, they have like a three-week wait for a reservation in a restaurant in a furniture store. Do you mind if we grab an iced coffee before we go up? Sure. But a lot of the newer ones, I go in and I expect to see something amazing and I think where I always walk out feeling let down is in the human interaction. Yeah. So I haven't been wowed by anything recently actually. And Cam, I think, and I think you talked about this the other day, I think you had two phrases what I thought was really good. One of them is experience is basically the new marketing. Yeah. Well, I was, I think the way I phrase it is that I believe that um, experience is the new sales and community is the new marketing. Because um, experience, actually, here's something that's old and tried and true and a great experience, Napa Valley. You go down there and there's a ton of vineyards. They each have their different focus, depending. Some are really focused on food pairing. Some are really, if it's an estate wine, on the wine itself. But there is an educational aspect to it. There's a sensorial aspect to it. They hire good storytellers. And you walk away in a good experience wanting to join their wine club. It's social. You go with like some couple from Texas and you're, oh, you're here too. And you end up talking about why you're here and maybe you've been had a little bit to drink so you start sharing more. But that to me is experiential marketing. It's getting a feel for this wine that you might buy at a restaurant or at a liquor store and feeling like you actually know it. We've seen a lot of like direct consumer brands that are now doing retail stuff. Do you think that's because that it's not possible to get that experience on the Yeah, on the wine? because at the end of the day, like who is the face of Apple until they opened the Apple store and those guys in the t-shirts helped you figure out how to use your phone? Yeah. Like they are the face of Apple. Do you want anything? No. Uh, I'll have a nice coffee, please. What size? Uh, small, please. Name? Henry. Anything else? No, thank you. I felt the same way about Warby Parker. I intellectually thought it was a good business idea when it was just online. Yeah. And then the first time I went into the store was actually the first time I ever bought anything there. And of course, the store experience really fit the image that I thought I already had yeah. of the brand online. 
I think we've tried to take tricks from offline with Bark by having 250 super charming, dog-loving people in Columbus, Ohio, basically sitting and chatting and texting and talking. That's the Zappos model too, right? Zappos model. I think in many ways we are trying to kind of up the Zappos model by having people who are very dedicated in a specific kind of like vertical where... Dog is all emotion. And there's not a lot of places where people actually want to talk about your dog. And so uh, we're trying to talk to a third of our customer base every month and not about problems they have with their subscription or their product, but just about how their dog is doing and what kind of play style it has, and if it sleeps on its back on its paws. But that's what I mean about community. So what you've done is you've created a community for dog lovers, and that's your marketing. Yeah. I think you can do it in a very niche way. Like uh, there's a store here called the Detox Market, which is all about clean skincare. And if you go in there, there's a big community and makeup, clean beauty. There's a big community of people, some of them suffering from cystic acne, some have gone through cancer and really looking to detoxify their life, and that's a niche community. But I think, I have to hand it to the folks at Nike, I think some of the ads that they've done recently where they really took a stance, and like the Colin Kaepernick ad, and that's marketing. They're saying this is our community. We value athletics, but we also value self-expression and freedom and we're going to create a controversial piece of content to say that that's our community. I guess like some of the outdoor brands have managed to do the same thing. Red Bull managed to do it a little bit. Uh, Patagonia managed to do it. Patagonia for sure. Um, Do you think, is that what Chanel also is? Is that a little bit of like a, like I made it kind of like the secret hand sign of people who made it? I think all luxury brands do to some extent, but I think where Chanel is, at least in my interpretation, unique is we were founded by a woman who had a business with thousands of employees in a time when women weren't even allowed to have bank accounts. So as a female professional, I think there are a lot of women who relate to the story. One woman once said to me, she's like the OG female entrepreneur. She totally is. So, I think that sense of achievement with Chanel is different perhaps with some of the other luxury brands that are beautiful products and great quality, where you do feel a sense of, I can imagine if you open your closet and everything is from a designer, there's a sense of, wow, I've made it. But with Chanel, I think that piece is unique. It's funny because I think sometimes a brand is very much, it often becomes the expression of the DNA of the founder. And I think even if you don't necessarily and I don't know your marketing well enough, but like if you brand it that much, you get the sense when you meet people who work in the organization that like that connection with shit, like with the original story is something that's very powerful and I would imagine they bring into their work every day. I always say that if you don't feel in your heart the why behind where you're working or what you're selling or what you're doing, your customers won't either. I think that's very true. So there are so many times where you have conversations with people about their careers, and I think you can always work through a difficult boss or a challenging project or even some things like lack of resources if you just really believe in what you're doing. But if you don't, everything else can be perfect and it won't end up being the right place for you. Yeah, that's true. 
Thank you so much for listening. I got a favor to ask. If you like the podcast, then it would be awesome if you could share it on social or rate the show so others can find it too. Also, I'd love some feedback. Just tweet me at at Wordlim. I'll be back with more entrepreneurial walks and talks very soon.